It's called MAPS. M-A-P-S, mindset, audience, product, and scale. Build an audience, give value, because it's gonna be really valuable later on. And then the third part is product. And so once you have an audience, figure out what the problems they have, you know, how you can help them. And it really comes from a place of like serving them. Once you have that, kind of nail down that um, product market with the product, then you can move on to the next phase, which is scaling. And this is where all the operational stuff comes into play. You can't have scaling without product. You can't have product without an audience. You can't have audience without really knowing what you're getting yourself into with the mindset. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today's guest, Young Soo Chung, left a successful career in cryptocurrency software engineering to found his first eight-figure e-commerce business, Urban EDC. He then went on to launch GrowthJet, a climate-neutral certified third-party logistics company. We'll get into that. Young, Young Soo is passionate about sharing the lessons he's learned with other entrepreneurs so they too can start a company that is both profitable and sustainable. And he hosts a really cool podcast, First Class Founders, a weekly podcast uh, about building a sustainable bootstrapped eight-figure business. Young Sue, man, welcome. JB, thanks so much for having me, man. Of course. I'm going to start maybe a little untraditionally for you. And I don't okay. want to know the backstory. We're going to get to that. This is going to be like open loop shit, right? We're going to like give this little <laughs> teaser and then we'll, we'll go back and figure out how it happened. But I had the opportunity in your hometown in San Fran to interview Exhibit on stage. You know Exhibit, the rapper. Yes, yes. Right. But you have taken it to another level. You lived with Coolio. <laughs> so what I want to hear, you live with the late, great Coolio. What I want to hear is one or two, whatever it is, stories, incidents. I just love to hear something interesting about living with Coolio. Then we'll figure out why you did later. Yeah. So we were in <laughs> South by Southwest in, in Austin, Texas. And um, we, we had, so I was part of this company and we were hosting a party and Coolio happened to be our, our headliner uh, for that yeah. party. And um, yeah, he just kind of showed up. And to be honest, we weren't expecting him to stay with us, but I guess he did. So he ended up, you know, after the party or after the the show, he came over and I mean, obviously he's Coolio. So a lot of people were trying to get into the house and all that. And, and so we had like a pretty full house. And then all of a sudden he's like, I want to start cooking. And so I guess he had this like cooking with Coolio show that he was I guess he just started or something. And so he started cooking pasta for us and it was wild because we were literally, and it was, the vibe was not like a party vibe. It was just more like, Hey, this guy is just cooking dinner for us. So he, he literally cooked pasta for us. Uh, and then the next morning, um, you know, I was sleeping on the, on an air mattress in the living room and he was out in the living room and he was playing his own tracks on iTunes on, on his computer. And he was literally just like, rapping it like word for word on it so it was crazy because he was playing his own track on his computer and just literally just just rapping to it and that one that one was just wild because i've i don't know it's just kind of like i've never seen an actual like you know artist or whatever like just playing their own stuff and just literally just word for word it sounded exactly like the track and it was just like crazy so that's cool man yeah. that's cool it's so so sad that he passed i mean he was a legend you know did he ever yeah. walk up to you and say something like look at the situation you got me facing <laughs> it's a lyric from gangster's Paradise. anybody that knows the rest of that you can do the next lyric in the youtube comments but i loved coolio man growing up he was a big i think i got a few years on you so he was a big uh he was a big deal man he was a, he was amazing when i heard that story i'm like oh i got it we got to start there. You got to always start with Julio <laughs> whenever possible. He, he he had a lot of backstories too about the music music industry, and um, he was talking about Redman, uh, Met the Man, Busta Rhymes. It was a lot of stories that, to be honest, like they were kind of behind the scenes stories, and like there's a lot there's a lot of shady stuff around that time for the music industry, and so he was like diving into that, and he was yeah he was really animated, so. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's dive into more about you. And I want to I want to kind of like roll through a little bit of your history here and then and get to maybe some more meat here, because I'm really, really interested um, in Urban EDC and how that came to be and everything. But tell me if I'm off on any of this. Oh, eight, oh, nine. You're in finance, slightly off Wall Street. Bad time to be there, obviously. And you start doing this side hustle personal finance blog, even an iPhone app that I think failed. So you're going down this place and eventually you move to San Fran. One way, move out there. You wanted to do a startup. Fast forward to around 2015, I believe you launched your first business, an e-commerce company called Urban EDC, which I think is that Everyday Carry? Urban, Urban yes, Everyday it Carry. Because you're, yep. selling, 
you're, you're a software guy. You worked for Ripple. You worked in crypto, like all this stuff. And now you're selling pocket knives. Can you please explain how the <laughs> hell that happens? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And, and to be honest, when I look back on it now, it's a pretty crazy jump uh, because, you know, I was living in San Francisco in the hub of all this crazy tech, you know, innovation happening. And, um, you know, I was working as a software engineer for, for Ripple and I got in really early. So I actually joined them in, in March 2014. And uh, yeah, that was a fantastic experience. I mean, the people that were there were way smarter than me and it was just a crazy time to be part of that. Um, but then towards the end of 2015, there was a lot of regulations that started coming down. And so like, um, obviously we still have regulation issues, but um, FinCEN was one of the issues that we were uh, resolving and that's been resolved. Um, but right around that time, like we literally had, our team had a lot of momentum going for us and uh, we, actually moved real value. Like we were trading between US dollars and Mexican pesos back and forth cross borders. And like our team was the first team to do that. And we were like really proud of that. So we had all this momentum going. And then all of a sudden, like this, you know, this regulation started happening and we literally, we were told to stop doing everything. Like we were just blocked. And I don't know, for me, it just, it, it really felt like I, um, you know, I'm someone that needs to keep moving forward. Like I, I need to see progress. Like it like bothers me when I don't see progress. And so um, at that point, I kind of decided, hey, you know, this is probably a good point to jump ship because, you know, I feel like I really gave everything I got um, to this company. So I was there for a year and a half and, you know, we were really rolling. We're really rolling. And then all of a sudden it's like, a, you know, it's like a, we hit a brick wall or something, Stop. right? Yeah. And so at that point, we're like, um, we're like, let's, let's you know, let's, I, I'm going to evaluate myself. So how, what, what am I spending my time doing? Obviously, you know, I was in crypto, but, um, I wanted to do something that wasn't going to require me to build out a team to raise VC money. Um, and the reason is because I think, to be honest with you, now that I look at it, it was a little bit of a backlash of like, you know, I felt like the government was, you know, coming after us a little bit, you know, our, our team. Uh, and I felt like I didn't really, um, felt like I didn't have control over a lot of stuff around that time in my life. And so I decided, hey, you know what? I'm just going to double down and bet on myself. And so I, I wanted to do something that wasn't going to require, you know, a large team or, um, you know, wasn't going to require some like crazy, like, you know, VC money or anything like that. And so this e-commerce shop, it was just starting to, the trend was going from Amazon FBA to building your own brand using Shopify. And so I just skipped the entire Amazon FBA part and went directly to building your own brand on Shopify. And so, yeah, that transition happened. I launched the shop in October 2015. And um, yeah, it was a really crazy jump. Going back to your question, it, it was something that I honestly really didn't think about that much, the ramifications. Um, but I really, I wanted to, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I felt like it was the right time. And it gave me a lot of freedom and autonomy to do whatever I wanted. And I think that's kind of what I was chasing because it felt like at work, it was just so like, you can't do this. Now you can't do this. Now you can't do this. And I just, that kind of built up, uh, you know, within me. And I wanted to do something where I had full control over everything that I was doing. So makes sense. What, what was it about Like, so you're, you're selling and I want to get to the FBA part. That's There's a couple questions in there, the fulfillment by Amazon uh, or skipping that, but what was it about pocket? Like, how did you get into the pocket knife space specifically? Like, how did you get there? Yeah. So I launched the shop. Um, actually, what I did was I bought stuff off of Amazon to test demand for certain types of products. Oh, and wow. so I wasn't making any money. I was buying them, you know, just at retail and then selling them at retail. But I just wanted to see if there was some kind of demand for serving this community of everyday carry enthusiasts. And so, uh, you know, I launched with, I don't know, like eight products, a uh, very small collection. And when I did that, people were like, hey, you don't have pocket knives in your shop. And so I wasn't a big knife guy when I first launched this, but I had an interest in like small pocketable goods, like, um, you know, like, I don't know, like fidgets and like coins and, and things like that. Uh, and pens, like well machine titanium pens. So that's kind of, uh, so when I started hearing that feedback, I was like, okay, well, I, be I better start looking into this because like a lot of people are like, hey, you can't be an everyday carry shop without knives. 
And so I, I started looking into it and, and I realized that, yes, like the knife is kind of the core pillar to everyday carry. So it's like the, you know, everything else is, is around the pocket knife. And so um, I decided to get into that. And then what I realized is like the, 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 knife, the knife industry is really passionate and it's a huge like industry. And so I started appreciating knives for the design aspects. Like it's a, it's a huge like, you know, you can nerd out about blade steels, different, you know, locking mechanisms, all that stuff. And I, when I realized that it was a really like, wow, I was like, wow, this is so interesting. It's almost like, um, you know, a piece of artwork. It's not about actual usage. Like if you can buy like a thousand dollar knives and people won't even use it. It's just kind of like almost like a, a toy that they just like open and close and then like admire it. And like, it's like, an art, it's like a piece of artwork. Yeah. yeah it's a collectible. So um, I, I just got into that. And, and from then on, I mean, it was just, yeah, I mean, it's, it's 90% of our sales and it's um, yeah. Okay. So, so, so uh, this is where I want to get into the FBA stuff. But my understanding, I'm not in this space. I know a few guys in the space. Yeah. So pardon me for my, my basic questions here that are going to come, <laughs> gonna come out. What I understand of FBA is fulfilled by Amazon in the simplest terms for me is that is where they would warehouse all goods and you just, you know, you process the order. They, they handle the shipping. Skipping FBA means that you're going to warehouse all goods, correct? Am I, am I, am I in the ballpark on that or no? Um, you're on the right track. So the, <laughs> so you can use a service called, um, a third party logistics provider or 3PL, which is ironically, I, I started a 3PL, uh, you know, a few years down the line, but basically I, I partnered up with a 3PL that was supposedly the best one. Cause I did a lot of research, um, went down a lot of rabbit holes and this service that I decided on was the best one at the time. Um, and so I guess in a way, going back to Amazon FBA, yes, yeah, so Amazon FBA, you ship out your goods, you prepare them, and then you uh, ship them out to all different sorts of, you know, Amazon warehouses across the country. And that's kind of how it works there. But then um, if you want to start a brand on Shopify, for example, you got to work with a 3PL who will ship out items on your behalf or you can ship it out yourself. So get a warehouse, you know, do all that yourself. So those are the kind of the two options uh, if you want to build a brand yourself. Got it. Got it. Pocket knives. Uh, these are not then like run of the mill, you know, mass produced. These are these are specific niche handmade. I mean, that's the, the space you're playing in, right? So how do you scale that? I, I guess, I mean, you've been in this business for a few years. Like, is it is it a reliable monthly month over month revenue source like is there that much volume of demand for you know high-end pocket <laughs> pocket knives i just don't know the space like you said it's 90 yeah. percent of your business i think you're doing about 300k a month top line so is that all uh, pocket knives are in that high a demand do you see any letting up on that or increasing like what what is that industry yeah so it, it's really interesting because there's certain pockets of like for example like you can go to a a a knife convention, like a knife show that's catered to, uh, it's called like art, like art knives basically. And they're, those are like $20,000 and literally they're like made out, you know, made out of really ex intricate materials and it's like crazy stuff. And so when you get into the, the art world, I mean, that's, you're talking about like, there's not a big market for that, but it's like, you know, one sale is like 20,000 or whatever. Right. So, um, there's that market. And then there's like the, the custom market, which is, um, you know, right, just knife makers in their garages, buys machinery and they make knives. And these go for probably one to 2000, depending on the, the, um, the materials that are used. Um, and so these are usually one-offs. Um, sometimes they'll make them in, in small batches, like three to five knives. Um, and so that's the next tier. And then the, the tier below that is what's called a, a mid-tech. And a mid-tech is uh, you get your blades and the kind of the, the, the shapes of the handles machined elsewhere. But then the knife maker will, will get all those stuff and then like they'll kind of like, you know, customize it or whatever. Um, but they're outsourcing kind of like the, that, that main part of it. Um, and so they'll make sure that everything is good. So they'll QC everything. Um, but they still put a lot of time and effort into that. And that's kind of the mid-tier. So that, that ranges about, I'd say, like 400 to let's say $600 that, that range. Uh, and then you get to the production stuff, which obviously there's a huge range in the production knives. So, 
It can be like, um, you know, a $20 knife that's like really, you know, mass produced and really cheap versus a production knife um, can go up to like $400 even. Um, and those are really well made. And to be honest, those higher end production knives are better quality than a lot of the custom ones that go for higher. Mm. And so it's an interesting, once you get into higher production um, knife uh, arena, then like you're actually... It's 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 almost like you you have to question whether or not a custom knife is worth worth it because it's um it's better quality than the custom knife in in a lot of ways not always yeah. uh but but often it is better quality uh, and you're paying for for less and so that that market is also you know I'd say that that premium production market is probably in the two hundred to four hundred range mm. um, and so going back to your question I'd say that it really depends on the market so right now the production market that I'm telling you about 200 to 400, that is being a little bit saturated. And so I think there's going to be more and more companies targeting a little bit lower end of that. And so uh, we're seeing a lot more movement into kind of the more of the cheaper stuff. Um, and so we just have to adapt with the, the times and uh, we can't be stubborn about, Hey, you know, we're going to stick with the custom market, which is a thousand bucks. Like if, you know, we put up, a few knives for a thousand if they're not selling then of course we have to pivot and we have to adjust for the market and so um our goal is to serve the everyday carry community and whatever the market decides to do um you know we'll listen to that very carefully and just kind of adjust now when you started this business you're coming out of a you know like you said a a, a company that was going 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 then boom full stop uh because of some regulation uh, how did you how did you initially see the capital? Did you have it? I don't know. Maybe it was uh, money you had in pocket, ready to go. But talk about the startup because there's a lot of people that are interested in. Yeah, I'd love to start a business, but even in this e-commerce space. But like, how do I get capitalized for that? Do I need to partner? Do I have to have my own money? Can you just give us a little bit of insight into how you got yeah. off the ground? It's my belief that you don't need a lot of capital to get started. There's a lot of creative ways you can test demand for a product and then eventually. You know, if you're doing e-commerce, like for example, you can do a Kickstarter or you can do a pre-sale. You can test demand before you commit a lot of capital. And so I always tell entrepreneurs like, hey, if you are, if you're not trying to cure cancer or build a rocket ship, like you really don't need venture, venture backing because it's really going to mess with you in terms of like, they're going to have their own expectations and you're going to essentially work like crazy, right? To meet these like obligations. And so, um, so obviously you gotta you should have like a, a little bit of a runway before you get started um so i'd say like maybe six months to a year is a, is a pretty good start um and then once you have that then you can do a lot of like get involved in these communities that you you're looking to serve and then figure out what their issues are and, and figure out a way that you can kind of plug yourself in and be a better version of whatever is out there and honestly that's really simple i mean it sounds simple and it's really hard to do but um it, it's just about just going into that community and figuring out, hey, like, can I insert myself in here somehow that's going to make the experience a little better for this community to solve whatever issue they have? And if the answer is yes, then like start small. So you could definitely, um, you know, buy a small amount of inventory or do a pre-sale or, you know, like I, I told you, like I, I bought stuff off of Amazon and resold them at, at no, no profit just to test demand. Mm -hmm. And so um, you can do stuff like that. But I definitely don't think you need to like go crazy with uh, inventory buying when you first um, get going. I mean, a lot of our projects now are, are on a pre-sale basis. And I'm, I'm really glad that we do that because we've been surprised. Like sometimes we'll oversell or, you know, sometimes we, it's like a dud. And so we don't sell that many. And so we know because, um, you know, we did that pre-sale that we don't have to order like a crazy amount and then we're sitting on inventory. So I, I definitely think that there's a, a good way to, uh, I guess, start uh, without having to think about, Hey, I need like, I don't know, 10,000, 20,000, $50,000, uh, as the initial capital. So I, I really don't think that that's necessary, um, to get started. Okay. Now you're eight years in, right? 2015, you're, you're coming up on eight years, if not at eight years yeah. already from when you started this business and you're doing, I think we talked about $300,000 in revenue monthly, if I'm not mistaken, and you've gotten it down for you to be at one hour a day. I mean, that's a, that's pretty much a Gobundus, we talk about horizontal income or passive income, right? That's pretty much a horizontal endeavor for you at this point. Yeah. Can you talk about, I don't know, the two, three, four key decisions that you've made or systems or what you've implemented in order to continue to make 
you know, your business thrive while you're not involved in it? What are some of the things that you did to get there? Yeah. So there's a lot of trust involved in this. And so, um, I have a team, a fantastic team. I have a manager who oversees everything for the brand. And, uh, that manager came in as a customer service rep essentially. And so he's been with us for five years now. And so he's kind of worked himself up, um, to this position. And so he and I are, you know, we have a weekly sync and we have a team sync as well. So right after our, my one-on-one with him, we have a team sync, which he leads. And so I'm, I, I'm just on pretty much on, on uh, mute and, and I let him, you know, run with it. Um, and so it's really about empowering, uh, my, my manager, so I'm empowering him to make sure that he's, he has all the tools in order to lead this team. And so I, that's why I do the, the one-on-ones before the team sync in case, like, I don't want to bring up anything because I want him to bring it up because that allows the other people on our team to really trust, you know, his direction. Right. So, um, I'd say one other thing is like, yes, you can delegate tasks, but really it, it's all about delegating, uh, decision-making. And that is a really hard step, I would say, because, you know, their decisions could cost you money down the line. Right. Um, but sometimes it's, it might be worth it because then they le- learn the lessons and it's happened. Like I, you can't control those mistakes. Like they'll happen. Um, and so you kind of have to almost let them make mistakes so that they can learn from them. And so if you're the one constantly telling your team like, Hey, do X, Y, and Z, then like you're going to be the bottleneck. And so you have to kind of like let control, let that control go and let your team trust that your team will make the decisions that's best for the company at that moment in time. And then if things don't work out, then you, we learn from them and then we move on. But, um, if you're trying to control every single aspect of, of what you're doing, then you're, you're going to get into trouble where you're, you're the bottleneck for everything and you're going to feel overwhelmed. And so, um, yeah, I think that's kind of been a really, really important, um, you know, a factor. I, I, I like to think of it as like an I, we, they. So like when you first start a project, you're the one doing everything. Let's like you're a baby. And then we phase of it is like you work with your team to come up with the systems and processes. And then the they portion is, you know, you have someone else running the ship and you kind of just observe and make sure that things aren't breaking apart. And so um, for Urban EDC, that's been accomplished. So we're kind of at that they phase where I, you know, I don't have to be in it day to day, I'd say like, yeah, one hour max per day. What's up everybody. Thanks for taking a minute here to listen to what I have to tell you about GoBundance membership. If you've been listening to this podcast and listening to me for any length of time, you know that GoBundance is the one catalyst to me changing my life drastically at the age of 40 plus. So for many of us out there, men and women, we struggle day to day being lone wolves in our own community, trying to figure out how do we get unstuck? I can tell you so many conversations I had with people where they just, they couldn't resonate with me and I couldn't resonate with them. And the moment I joined GoBundance and I've made a lot of money as a member of GoBundance, but the return that I can't calculate is the ability to show up as my authentic self and celebrate my ambitions and my achievements, but also be vulnerable and clear about my losses and my screw ups. Joining GoBundance has given me the ability to have all of that to have the foundation on which I can build the kind of life I want to. It's how I quit my job. It's how I moved to the Dominican Republic. It's how I have the adventures I do right now. It's how I got this podcast. It's how I founded GoBundance Emerge. It's how I partnered with Quantum Capital. All of it is thanks to my investment in me and finding this community of entrepreneurial people that are driven to be the best versions of themselves. As we call it, the tribe for healthy, wealthy, generous people who choose to live epic lives. If you're listening and haven't become a member, you're sitting on the sidelines and watching life pass you by when you have the chance to invest in yourself, in your community, in your tribe, and drive your life to the next level before, God, I'm 44. I mean, it went so fast. I've got so much I wanna do, but time is compressing on me. This has shortened my time horizon to where I'm trying to get to, and it can for you as well. Check out GoBundance.com. Fill out an application. If you want to go directly to the GoBundance women's side, if you're a million plus dollars in net worth uh, and a female, go to GoBundanceWomen.com. And if you're at that zero to $2 million mark for a man or zero to $1 million mark for a woman, check out GoBundanceEmerge.com. Sign up and hang out with me. I run that community like it's my life. I would love to have you a part of that, and we have 
we have given an amazing opportunity at $500 a month or $5,000 for the year to be part of a community that gets immense value from GoBundance members on a weekly basis through our millionaire case studies and everything else. Join one of these GoBundance communities, the one that's right for you. Get in the room that lets you look up at the next level so that you can achieve what you're trying to in this lifetime. GoBundance.com, GoBundanceWomen.com, GoBundanceEmerge.com. Check us out. At what point in the business's arc did you go into having the team and start to delegate responsibility? Like, was it was it early on? Was it, you know, late in the game? Any regrets? Like, knowing what you know now, would you have done it sooner or later? Kind of give me an idea of, like, a, a, as a founder, at what point did you mm-hmm. end up bringing in a team and then start, start, start I love the I, we, they. That's a great point. Start going through that process of, okay, let me get this dude together and I'm going to start delegating. And was it the exact right time? Or looking back, do you feel like it could have been done a little sooner or a little later than when you did it? Yeah, this is a really good question. And there is no right or wrong timing for this. Uh, it, for example, yeah, I told you about our, our, our manager now, and he started off as a customer service rep. So, um, you know, obviously back then he was not ready for this role sure. and it's a constant evaluation. So, you know, I mean, I'm still, I, I evaluate even today, like, for example, like you never know, like, you know, next month there might be something where maybe he's no longer fit for the job. Right. So I'm not saying like, it's, it's, it's kind of a you know, there's always an evaluation. And I question myself too, like, am I the right person to be in this position? So I, I always evaluate every single position at the company, you know, at that given moment in time and, and evaluate whether or not that person is the right fit for where the company needs to be in the future. And so it's not, it's, a, you know, that's kind of a, it's, it's an art, I'd say more than a science. And so you can't really say, hey, in one year, you know, I want to, make sure you can do X, Y, and Z. Like it doesn't work that way. It's always like, a, I mean, you, you, I guess you could create goals that way, but it's more of a gut feeling like, okay, this person is ready, you know, or this person is not yet ready. What do they need to do in order to get ready? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, it's not an easy answer there. And um, I, I would, yeah, I, I would also add that it's, it's, I would say that it's usually better to have someone within the company to rise up into these larger roles versus trying to hire someone outside um, to come in unless they have like a ton of experience and everyone can rally around them and really like, you know, get their trust, earn their trust. Um, but that's not easy to do. And I, I would say if you can just definitely um, do it from within your company. What have you learned about in the evaluation phase? what you needed and get from that manager. So is it specific market knowledge? Is it, is it uh, something more intangible, you know, leadership skill or whatever? I'm sure it's a combination, but I'm kind of curious about the fit in your opinion, your experience with what you did yeah. and how you evaluated and determined, you know what, this guy's the guy. Was it that he's just, is he offsetting yeah. you personality wise? Is that what it is? Or is it that specific or is it more, is it more, no, no, no I've learned that I need somebody that has, a lot of knowledge on product and I can develop the leadership or the other way. I, I, what, what's that decision tree look like? How did you decide on this guy? What were the skills or the attributes that made you decide on him? Yeah. So I, I think there's core traits that you absolutely need. So like, you know, you have to be coachable. Like for example, if we're working together and you know, this guy is, is kind of like giving me an attitude or doesn't want to change. I mean, that that's a fundamental level of like, okay, no, it's not going to work. Um, so there's like certain, levels of standards that you, you have to meet. Um, and then beyond that, though, I would say the most important thing is probably um, the vision of where the brand should be going. And so remember, like we want to delegate decision-making and also the vision, right? So uh, you, we really have to be on the same page, like literally like the decisions that they make or this manager makes on my behalf, it has to be like, we're so in sync that like, He's thinking about what I'm thinking and I'm thinking about what, he, what he's thinking. And so that is probably the number one thing that I'm looking for is how, I guess, more of a gut intuition thing. Um, you know, he's been with us for, for five plus years now. So he has a really good sense of how I like to operate and, and, and um, things like that. Um, so that's probably the most important thing. I'd say um, in terms of leadership, that's important as well. Um, but that can be, you know, that can be developed over time. 
but I think the vision and the intuition of where the brand needs to go is is more difficult to develop um, or I guess kind of get. And so that's probably the, 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 the most important factor. Facebook at some point uh, banned your ads because you're selling knives, which yes. I mean, I, I roll. It's like, that sounds so, it's so binary. Like, oh, knife, bad, no ad or whatever. But that sounds like Facebook. Um, how did you or how had you maybe at that point, I don't know if you, maybe you already did, diversify your, your um, you know, your input, your marketing streams. If, cause I got to imagine Facebook ad, ad revenue, ad generated, uh, uh, sales were a big piece of your, of your, of your, uh, uh, of your income. So what was the impact? I guess maybe that's part one of the question. What did you see when that happened? And then two, what have you, or what did you, or what are you doing to diversify your, your marketing strategies? Yeah. So we were relying on these Facebook ads for our growth, um, for a good chunk of time. And to be honest, we were like, you know, we were crushing all records, like sales records, and we, it was really effective. And then one day they just- These are direct sales ads, correct? Like, just to be clear, these are direct sales ads through Facebook? Yes, that's right. Got it. Sorry, continue. And so we saw about a 50% dip the following month. And uh, wow. at that moment, we we're like, okay, well, obviously we, 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 we got to make some changes here. Uh, so the lesson that I learned there is that, you know, in terms of growth channels, a lot of people like to say, uh, you know, double down on what's working, right? But that has a double-edged sword because, okay, you double down on what's working and then what if they ban you? Then what do you do, right? So, um, I mean, I, I, I see where that, you know, where that's coming from. Like, let's say Google search is doing really well for you, SEO. So you double down on that, but then the Google changes their algorithm and then now you're screwed, right? So it's kind of like that. But um for us, we started to look at, I guess, working with other makers and collaborators and partnering up with them and cross-promoting. And so that's really been our biggest growth driver is partnering up with other makers in the industry who already have really large followings. Um, and we do projects together. And that way we kind of like share each other's audiences and we grow um, naturally from that. And so, yeah, we double down on our, um, our, our product line to make sure that we were bringing in stuff that's really, really hard to find, really high in, high in demand stuff. And so instead of going like selling, you know, a lot of like one item where it's like, um, we just, you know, we just ads, ads, ads and getting sales that way, we worked on, you know, a little more strategically, okay, can we get five items of this thing that's like usually never available for sale? And so we, we, we do that. And then uh, that people talk about it. Like we have gear drops every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific time where all the stuff gets, um, you know, uploaded to the site. And so at that time, people will go and like literally people, we have customers setting alarm clocks for that time to try to get some of these items. And so um, we've kind of trained our customers to like, hey, Wednesday, 12 p.m. Pacific, you know where to go. And so that's worked out really well for us. That's amazing. I love that. The space is so interesting. There's a guy in GoBundance. Um... I won't say his name. He used to be an attorney left to start an e-commerce business that it's a uh, golf cart parts. So I ask you about like the, the knives, like, I don't know how you, you've explained it really well, actually. It's like, you, you know, it's just, it's not like you went in, Oh, knives, cameras, like you went through different products and it just somehow knives came up, right? The same to him, I'm sure with golf cart parts. Um, but the potential in that space, like he scaled to 10 million plus in revenue annually. And he credits another coach, a coach he has. It's actually another GoBundance guy, which is fascinating. Like golf cart parts, 10 million plus a year in golf cart parts. But what do you do next with that? Is this sellable? Can you can you wrap this up and sell it? Or do you, I don't know, what's the next step for for your e-commerce brand for EDC? Yeah, I mean, we, we could theoretically um, because it's so like segregated out into different areas. So like, you know, I have three parts to my business currently. But each part is is very much contained, and so we could wrap it up and uh, sell the brand to you know whoever else. Um, so yeah, I mean that's very much possible. Interesting. All right, with this brand, you had no need to be you know uh, have a big following, be an influencer, none of that stuff, right? This was this was all you, some guy behind the scenes that starts a brand and boom, it blows up to three point six plus a year in revenue, which is incredible. I, I, absolutely incredible. So mm -hmm. I love your story, but let's talk about Humphrey. It's a little bit of a different, a different story to get to that brand. So who is Humphrey and why does Humphrey have 180, 170, 150,000 followers? Let's start that story. All right. So, 
So Humphrey is our French bulldog. And he is a celebrity on Instagram and TikTok now. Um, and so we brought him home in uh, 2017. And we started just posting, you know, cute videos and, and photos of him on Instagram. And some of them just took off. Like they went viral. And it's so funny because the, the first real viral video that went off is me, me cradling him like a baby. And so like in the video, you can see like my torso and it's been viewed millions of times. Right. And so, um, he, yeah, he just, that he just gained a huge following. And then at that point, you know, um, my wife and I, we thought, okay, how can we, um, you know, what can we do with this? And so, um, the, the logical step here was that, you know, we already had the urban EDC e-commerce shop and people were already asking, like, hey, where, where, where can I buy that harness? Where did you get that leash? And so we're like, okay, instead of driving traffic to like an Amazon affiliate page or something like that, um, we're sl- we said, okay, let's just start an e-commerce shop because we already have the back-end operations for, you know, we know how to do it. And so uh, we set up a, another Shopify site um, and launched Spotify Humphrey, which is a dog boutique. Um, and so the it's a play on word because his handle is Spotted Humphrey because he's got these like black spots and he's got like a, you know, so... Uh, it's a plan words there. And yeah, it was a really crazy journey because we got invited to uh, go down to LA and film with <laughs> Shopify. And literally the, the the week before that, like they were filming a commercial for Google. Uh, and then now we were like in the studio and, you know, it was like my wife and Humphrey were on a set. It was like a an actual professional set. And the camera crew, there were probably like 10 people. They're all filming. And it was insane, and it was just a, a really fun experience, and, and um, yeah. And it, you have you have a, a Poda. Is that the second one now? Second French bulldog. What is Poda yeah, involved, yeah. or is Poda yeah. like the so, redheaded stepchild, like not the star, like Ryan's <laughs> world's little siblings kind of thing? Like, how does Poda fit in? Um, yeah, she does model for some some clothing, um, but yeah, she's uh, she's a little less involved, I'd say, in, in the shop, but. Um, I mean, she's really, really popular on, on, on social, like on Instagram and TikTok, like, because she's so animated and her personality is so big that a lot of her videos actually do better now than, than Humphrey's videos. And so, um, I mean, she, she helps out with, uh, you know, the marketing side of things, I I guess you could call that, but, um, but yeah, I mean, just having them to just interact with each other. I mean, that stuff is like. Those are the videos That's that cool. do really, really well. That's cool. So, what, um, um, if you don't yeah. mind me asking, is that taken off? Is that brand taken off? Is it done well? Is it is it uh, uh, growing, or is it just sort of I don't know something fun? It yeah. brings in a little money, and you know, it's just it's it's in the it's in the uh, the yeah. back end. You already have the back end, so no big deal. What does that look like? Well, yeah, it is growing, and um, so Sandy, my, my wife and business partner, she launched her own product uh, last year uh, called Poopsie Daisy, and it's like this thing you put on your leash and you carry. Um, you could put the used poo bags on there to carry around with you. And so that she did a Kickstarter for that. It was successful. And um, so that's her first product product that yeah. she made herself. And so Spotted by Humphrey was similar concept to Airbnb to see where, you know, we're, we're, we were reaching out to other uh, brands to bring stuff in as like yeah. a boutique. Right. Um, but now she's starting to build her own products. And so um, she's got some other products that she has kind of in, in the back of her mind that uh, we're going to develop. So yeah, it's, it's a brand that's, um, you know, it's it's a lot. It's a lot of fun to be honest. Like it's um, uh, it's just a fun fun thing. And also, like it's um, the new brand with all these new products that were coming. Uh, I think that's kind of like gonna be a, a big, um, I guess, yeah. inflection point for us. Um, but also, she's got other, you know, revenue streams from the sponsorships that we get from brands. I mean, so that's it's a really interesting model because essentially, like our our French bulldog is like a creator, right? So we get like brand deals from. Um, for posting and reels and all that stuff. So the revenue mix is definitely different. Uh, it's not like 100% e-commerce, um, but it, it's definitely like a, you know, a growing, I guess, subset of, of our entire business. I look at you, you've got like 400 followers on Instagram yourself, right? Like, like you have, you, if it's your account, unless I'm looking at the wrong account, right, but it's yeah. like 400 followers. Your dog has 150,000 yeah. plus a big TikTok account, all that stuff, right? So you've got these two different brands, these two different businesses running, one of which is non-reliant on any sort of influencer marketing. The other one is fully reliant on influencer marketing. And obviously, you know, dog lifespan and everything. I don't mean that. But sustainability, 
sustainability on each of these sides. I guess, what have you learned? It is one preferred, and this could be personal preference, doesn't have to be you know business preference, or is there one you recommend more than the other? I'm, I want to dive into these two different, because there's so many people that say, man, I want to build my brand. And that's great. You have a bunch of followers, but then you got to learn how to monetize that brand and so on. But then on the other side, you built a significant brand and business without any sort of following or influencer marketing. So can you talk about those parallels? What have you learned? What do you teach people? Is it a preference thing? What does that look like? Yeah. So when I was building Urban ADC, I really wanted to build up a brand. And um, to be honest, like we also built a brand for Urban ADC, an audience. So we didn't launch Urban ADC until we hit about 10,000 followers on Instagram. And so we were able to build an Instagram page for Urban ADC oh, before we launched. And so I, I do always urge people to um, build an audience for the community that you're serving first. Um, but I mean, I, I knew from day one that Urban ADC was not going to be like my own personal thing. And so I didn't build a personal brand, um, you know, based off of that. But then with with Spider Humphrey, obviously, like his, it was like his videos and, and such were doing so well. So we wanted to leverage that and kind of double down on that. And so that's kind of the reason why that was way more like focused on, you know, that angle versus um, Urban EDC, which was more like the company angle, right? So personal brand versus a company brand. And to be honest, I feel like back in 2015, when Urban EDC launched, the trend and the consumer psyche wasn't like there were not a lot of brands doing cool stuff. And so if you were a brand doing relatively comparatively cool stuff, then you can still stand out and people can still get behind a brand. Whereas now I feel like that has kind of changed where people right. don't trust brands and they trust, you know, uh, you know, these, yeah. these creators. And so now I would say, you know, definitely build a personal brand first and then start companies um, after that. And so the approach is, is different because um, the consumer mindset has shifted a little away from companies into personal brands. Is there a secret, a hack, something that you've done to grow a following on both sides, even the 10,000? I mean, was it well-timed when you were doing it? Yeah. Um, did you, like you said, you got one viral video, you just kind of like, whoop, lucky, and then boom, you grew. But I don't know, how do you... like? I completely, by the way, agree with that, building your brand. And I want to talk about monetizing that brand because that's a whole other art. Um, but building the brand or building the size or building the following, building a community, like you said, I love that phrasing, a social network. Mm -hmm. What are some things you've done or that you teach or that you know of or that you've seen that help people? Somebody sitting like, well, you know, I've got a decent following. People are pretty engaged, but I want to grow my following or grow my reach. What are some things people that you do or have done or that you've seen done? Yes. So I think you need to be aware of, what your community is looking for. And so when I say that, what I mean by that is, is for example, for Urban ADC, when we launched in 2015, for about six months before that, you know, we were posting daily on our Instagram and the things that we're posting aren't our products because we didn't launch it yet. So what we were posting were just reposts of other people that took really high quality photos of EDC gear, everyday carry gear. And so um, we would, of course, we would give them credit and then what we also did was we laid out the different brands that are in that photo. And so a lot of times the problem that a lot of um, people were having within this community at the time was people will be posting really cool stuff, but then they wouldn't know where to buy it. They'll be like, where can I get that? Like, that's like probably the number one thing that, um, you know, people ask is who's the maker or where can I get that? And so what we did was we, we did some research and essentially every single post had you know, pen and then tag the maker, you know, flashlight and then tag the maker. So we, we, we essentially identified all the, all the items. And then in that photo, we tagged the original poster. And so that person would check it out be like, Oh, cool. Like this is a, you know, a, a good post and they'll either follow us or they'll comment on it or whatever. Um, but we did this for six months. And so what happens is even just that slight small value exchange of people, wanting to know like where these things were from because people weren't talking about it. Even just that tiny piece of information was enough to get people to follow us and build this, this, this brand, I guess. Right. And so, um, I think it really depends. Like for, for example, for Humphrey's account, um, you know, that was completely different. It, that's not what we did for Humphrey's account, but what we did was like, we just created really great content during a time when Instagram video was starting to take off. 
And so Reels was like a new product. And when Reels came out, we kind of rode that wave. And a lot of the Reels like got millions of views. And so I think it's really about knowing. So there's a couple parts to this question. Um, it's it's knowing the the deep problems for your community that you're trying to solve. Uh, and then the second thing is writing out, I guess, like a wave or a trend that's happening um, maybe on a platform level. So, you know, Instagram is pushing out reels at the time, videos. And so we've posted a lot of videos and reels. Um, I'd say maybe right now, like TikTok. TikTok is pushing more longer form content. Uh, they're trying to get, you know, less of the four or five second videos and more one minute plus videos. So my guess is they'll probably push that to their algorithm and they'll show more of those videos because they want to push that and promote that. And so you kind of have to know, you know, what is being pushed by the platforms and then how can you kind of ride that wave? And so it's a two part thing where you have to figure out what your audience wants and why they're following you. So Urban ADC's case, they were following it because we were posting really cool photos and identifying where to buy all those things. And then Spotted Humphrey's case is, you know, we were making really cute and funny videos and then posting it in uh, kind of riding the wave of these platforms. And so there's a couple parts to that. Yeah. The thing you talked about just now is understanding what your, your, you know, your community wants and delivering that to them. Um, you did that through, I guess it sounds like almost analytics more than engagement. Is that fair? Or was there a robust engagement campaign as well? Whatever that means, DMs, uh, some sort of outreach socially interacting with your audience? Like how did you, your audience got what they wanted based on the data you saw, if I'm hearing it right. Is that the way? Is that, I mean, that's, that's obviously, I've never heard that. I've always heard, no, you know, you've got to engage, comment on every comment, uh, you know, DM every, everybody, you know, uh, put out stories with, with interactive, um, you know, polls or quizzes or whatever. And I'm sure all of that's there, but for you, is it more understanding based on the analytics, what your audience is looking at and delivering more of that? Was that the way you've grown affinity with your brand the engagement piece is really important now i would say like it's the the world has changed when rbnec first launched like you didn't need to do that much engagement i mean yes sure you know you can engage but like it wasn't that like there weren't as many brands there weren't as many creators or influencers and so uh it was easier to get by sure just posting really good content but now i would say you definitely do need to engage and so um you know, with Spotted Humphrey, like you have hum Humphrey fans out there who are who are commenting every single day. I'm serious, like it's crazy. But um, you know, we 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 walk around the neighborhood and people recognize him. They want to take That's photos awesome. with him and stuff. It's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and um, and so you know, they're they're commenting every day, and we we want to make sure we go in there and we you know at least give them a, like a heart or whatever, and and just make sure that they they feel appreciated because they don't have to do that, right? And so, um, it's definitely changed now. And, and I would definitely say engagement is important. Um, now, obviously, engagement takes a long time to do. And so you got to weigh the options of like, okay, like, do I engage for an hour or do I take that hour and, and use it for something else that's like that could grow the business even further? And so that that's really up to, you know, up to you to decide. But uh, I would say engagement is pretty important now. Well, the phases you talked about is, is really good, too. As I think about my brand or what I've been trying to do with my brand or have done with my brand. Um, I feel like when there's the most momentum is when I'm doing what you did with EDC for six months, right? It's just give, give, give. Here's a bunch of, you know, this is what you're looking for or whatever. There's no ask, right? Mm -hmm. There's no, and you're, you're growing an audience. People are interested in what you're saying or whatever. And people like that. They like to, especially now in the day, like you said, of personal brands trumping the business brand, which I, man, that resonates so much with me. I completely agree with that. You know, people want to hear from authentic voices and, and almost like, you know, okay, you just walked in the door. Are you going to sell me? No. Oh, okay. You're giving me a bunch of information. I like this guy. And then later on, if you say, hey, by the way, I got this thing I'm launching. It's the jab, jab, right hook approach, right? Like people are going to buy because now they trust you. They like you and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm, and even mm -hmm. somebody I had on the show was saying, oh, we do a 95-5 post ratio. It's 95% pure value, 5% we ask. We make a sale. We, we, we direct them somewhere or whatever it might be. And that just really makes sense to me. But I think the, I think the era of the personal brand is honestly in its infancy. And I, you know, I, I think it's a very, very powerful, underutilized, inexpensive, if not free way to build audience. And audience is a hell of an asset class, I think. Yeah, that's, this is great. So I, I actually have a framework that Ooh. I just, I just um, 
wrote about. Um, and it's it's called Maps. So M A P S. And so this is really cool because it goes along with um, my, my the podcast First Class Founders. So I have this airplane theme going on. And so when I came up with this acronym Maps, it was like I was like pretty happy with that. But uh, it it stands for uh, mindset, audience, product, mm. and scale. So what I mean by that is mindset is, first of all, you got to be ready. This is kind of a, I see entrepreneurship as like a long game. Like it's more of a, a life approach than, 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 you know, seeing an end game for me personally. So you got to know where, you know, what you're, what you're getting yourself into. Um, you got to shed your old identity. Um, you got to just really figure out like, what is it that I want in my life? Like that's kind of the whole like, you know, visualization, this kind of thing, right? So that's the mindset piece. Audience piece is, Build an audience, right? Like you just said, give value, build an audience because it's going to be really valuable later on, but you're not trying to sell them anything. The, the audience piece comes before that or before the product. And so you build your audience. And what what's important here is that you want to build an audience that not only, um, you know, you have expertise in because then it's easier to build an audience. Like, for example, I have a lot of experience in e-commerce, so I could talk about e-commerce and people will follow me. But then... I'm also interested in this creator space now. And so I'm not only talking about the e-commerce stuff. That that would be way easier for me to build an audience, but I, I want to bring in the creator world as well. And so I think there's two pieces to the audience building, which is like the people that, the, the expertise that you have, because that'll make it easier to, to build an audience. But then there's also like the, the piece of like, you know, where you want to be and who you want to be hang out, hanging out with. And so you may not have an expertise in that, but that's where the networking piece comes in. And that's where like these mastermind groups, like, um, like abundance can come in because um, that's kind of like where you want to be in the future. And so you want to kind of do both of those to build your audience. Uh, and then the third part is is product. And so once you have an audience, then you can figure out what the problems they have, you know, how you can help them. And it really comes from a place of like serving them rather than like, I'm going to build a product and people are going to buy it from me. Like, that's not how it works. Um, you got to go from how can I help these people accomplish something or or solve a problem, right? Uh, and so that's kind of the, the product piece. And so like testing, validation, um, you know, doing pre-sales, all that stuff. Um, that's P. And then scaling is once you have that, you know, you don't want to scale before you have product market fit because then you're throwing money into a leaky bucket. And so once you kind of nail down that um, product market uh, with the product, then you can move on to the next phase, which is scaling. And this is where all the operational stuff comes into play. So setting up the systems and the whole like I, we, they thing um, comes into play with the scaling portion of it. So this entire framework, one, it builds on the other, you know, previous letter. So you can't have scaling without product. You can't have product without uh, audience. You can't have audience without really knowing, your, knowing what yourself, what you're getting yourself into with the mindset. So that's kind of uh, the whole, the whole thing that I, that I see. I like that. I could see the lead magnet. <laughs> It's a great lead magnet you can you can put together on that. So I'm serious. That's a great. I love the name. I love the 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 stacking. That's really really cool. So kudos to you on that. Uh, let's pivot over real quick. I want to talk about Growth Jet, climate neutral logistics company. What does that mean? So we <laughs> offset all of our carbon footprint for the entire year, and so you can think of it as um, you can think of it as like for 2020 2021. 2022, we produced zero carbon for our operations. Uh, and so that has really been interesting for us because, uh, you know, a lot of brands are now value focused instead of just, hey, we sell you this product, go ahead and buy it. There's got to be a why behind it. Like, oh, we, you know, we, we exist because we want to solve, you know, like uh, we, we, we're, we're a sustainable company because there's a lot of, issues with trash or whatever, like it's, it's um, bad for the planet. And so because now there's like this big push for um, brands having a voice and brands having, you know, standing up for something, us being climate neutral certified, which we, we're the first 3PL to become climate neutral certified, by the way. Um, and and so when we did that, we got a lot of interest from from brands who also think the same way. And so it's really about value alignment. And so we don't want to work with brands who are just looking to get the cheapest pricing, cheapest rates or whatever. Like, obviously we want to provide, um, you know, the best service at the best prices, but um, 
we really want to work with people that align with our values. Uh, and so um, because of having this climate neutral aspect of it, like we've been able to do that where, you know, we're attracting a lot of partners that we want to work with instead of like just taking in everybody and then like them, you know, deciding later on, like, oh, you know, th this company is like, you know, horrible for whatever reason, like we, we can actually like work with them in, in an amicable way. Are there tax incentives inherent in that as well, being certified as climate neutral? I'm surprised by that. Uh, yeah. No. That's interesting. I mean, no I think I, what I love about it is it's yeah. purely capitalist what you're doing, yeah. right? I mean, it's it's market-based, you know, so you're you're doing something that you believe in around the climate, which gets so much attention and it's such a, uh, it's such a football. It's mm -hmm. politicized. Somehow climate is politicized, but whatever. The But you've developed, uh, you've created a business that's been certified as climate neutral. It's important to you, obviously. And you've got brands getting on board that share that value. So you don't need massive subsidies or tax breaks or whatever to have a thriving business in the space that is helpful to the climate. That's what I take from it anyway, um, which is really, really cool. So that's amazing. How, how is it? And maybe you said it, I might, you know how sometimes when you're on an interview, your, your brain is going other places, but how is it that it is like, can you get tactical? Like, what does it mean to be like, how is it climate neutral? What does that mean? Climate neutral? What do you do? So, so there is an organization and this is a fairly new organization, but they're really legit. Like, um, you know, they've got REI certified through them. Um, you know, they've got this, all these big companies now certifying through them. Um, and so it's an organization that's, Essentially, you have to buy, you have to measure, you have to measure your carbon footprint. And so um, they help you like determine, okay, um, you know, how much money did you spend on X, Y, and Z? Uh, and so they look at all that and then they determine, okay, you have to offset, you know, this amount of, um, you know, carbon footprint for the year. And so once you have that amount, then you can go to their marketplace and they have, a, they partner up with a bunch of different services that, um, you know, you can buy carbon cre credits, right? So, um, you go, go to that marketplace and you, you, you essentially buy whatever carbon you need to do, uh, to buy, to offset your, um, your annual, um, hmm. carbon. So that's kind of how that works. And so once you do that, then they will certify you as car carbon, um, climate neutral certified. And they'll put you on the website and all that stuff. Uh, and so this, in my opinion, is the most legitimate organization that uh, doesn't have like a bias. Because a lot of, there are some out there that are like, uh, there's like a, you know, um, carbon neutral certification, but it's like through some kind of fund where like they get, they're trying to get people. It's like, you know, there's like a lot of politics, like you said, involved. Uh, but this this organization is 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 a um, nonprofit, and they're really like positioned well, in my opinion, um, from from a non biased perspective to to grow. And so, um, so yeah, that's kind of like what why we kind of went with them. And they're very, they're very strict. They're actually more the, the stricter one. So there's a lot of other services that will just say, oh, you're 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 um, carbon neutral. Your business is carbon neutral. But like, there's not a lot of like checks and balances in place. Whereas this company they actually like, you know, you got to like measure all your, your stuff. And so it's a lot more comprehensive and that's why I, I think that they'll, they'll, they'll do really well in the future. Is there, is there a, what, I don't know what, what's the additional cost to you to do this? So, you know, as a percentage of revenue, as a percentage of your bottom yeah. line expense line, whatever it might be, but what is, what is the additional cost to you? How significant is that? It's not that significant. So it's, about a thousand bucks to use their, I guess their their brand image, their branding. So climate neutral one certification. time or monthly or per per year, yeah. And then and then we have to buy the carbon carbon offsets. So um, that's obviously depending on your business and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, it's the it's the 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 licensing piece to, to use for the year. And then there's the carbon offsets that you have to purchase yourself. And so it's those two pieces um, combined. That so all in for the year, I'm, I, I, this is a fairly new company, but still all in for the year. Are you anticipating or is it 10 grand, 20 grand less? No, no, it's less than that. I think, I think all in is, is um, 2.5 K or so. So it's not much. Wow. Are you, are you advantaged? Are you in a, are you in a the type of business that doesn't, off, it doesn't put off a lot of carbon to begin with. Uh, meaning this this three PL is it is it like yeah we don't have a huge carbon footprint to begin with so it's it's why not we can absolutely afford to offset our carbon. Is that an advantage or is it like no actually it's pretty affordable no matter who you are. 
I, I think that it, it depends on the service. So for example, um, we are, I mean, the majority of what we're doing is service-based, right? So we have a staff that picks and packs your orders and we ship them out, right? And so it's based off of what the expenses and what's under our, our, our I guess, umbrella of the business. And so um, for us, it's not that much carbon footprint, um, like you mentioned. And so I think that if you have, for example, if like FedEx or like UPS wants to go through with this, I mean, their cost is going to be way higher because of all the vehicles that they own. They have to offset all of that carbon footprint from the, from those vehicles. And so because we're not, we don't own any vehicles, um, it, it is more manageable for us um, to offset that. But I mean, there's other businesses that are just, you know, it's like a studio and they all they have is like electricity that they have to offset. Like, right. So it, it really depends on like, you know, what type of business that you're, you're running. Um, but I would say things that are a little bit more, um, I don't know, things that are a little more, I guess, movement in terms of like maybe commuting or um, transportation, these it tends to be much higher. So, okay. On the topic of entrepreneurship, as we, we're going to wind down here in a second, but I'm curious about this from your perspective, because you, you went through, mm-hmm. you know, different sort of iterations in your career job, and then it's like, well, you're working in startups, so it's kind of an entrepreneurial feel to it. And then full on entrepreneur, you've grown, you know, collectively an eight figure business between your brands. Yeah. Are entrepreneurs born or can they be bred? I love this question. So um, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. So I think that it's both. And what's great about entrepreneurship is that even if you don't have the inherent skill set. So actually this analogy is what, the analogy I like to use is like LeBron James basketball, right? So obviously when LeBron James is born, he had talent that I don't have, you know, like a normal person doesn't have. But like, if he does nothing with them, he just sits around and and just does nothing. I mean, then it's nothing. Then it amounts to nothing, right? Um. But of course, he's got a crazy work ethic on top of that now. And so he's built, he's able to essentially be the best in the world at, at this one sport. And so the difference between a professional basketball player and entrepreneurship and being an entrepreneur is this. So let's say you're pretty good at basketball, uh, but you're not able to make the professional league, right? You can't you can't make a living just playing amateur basketball, and you know be happy with that. Basically, I mean, but as an entrepreneur, even if you're not Elon Musk or you know these Jeff Bezos, like even if you're not the LeBron James of the business world, I mean, you can make a pretty good living, right? And so that's really the difference that I saw in, in these kind of like this this analogy here is. Uh, in order to make a, a, a decent living in a, a professional sport like basketball, you have to be like top 0.0001% of that. Whereas entrepreneurship, you don't have to be the absolute best, but you can make a, a, a life that you want to live as long as you keep at it and you keep learning and you keep iterating. I mean, that's really the biggest difference I see. I, honestly, yeah. I feel like every single person can be an entrepreneur. It's just a matter of like, you know, how far you, you're willing to, to take it. And uh, yeah, of course, there's like talents or like, you know, born skill sets, like I'd say like patience, uh, the ability to maybe like delay gratification, like um, things like that, maybe or maybe being able to like handle um, difficult situations and like just get over them easily. Like maybe these things are kind of more of the inherent, like you're born with. Um, but generally, I, I, I do believe that everybody can become an entrepreneur and be relatively successful at it. Um, which is, and, and make a really good living. Um, and that's the, the beauty of entrepreneurship is, you know, it doesn't take that much to get to that point. Whereas something like a professional sports, like you have to be the absolute best to make a living off of it. Right. So that's a great answer, man. I love that. That's a really good answer. I've always wondered that myself. And I think I've had to answer that question for me based out of insecurity. Like, am I really, you know, am I, can I, can I really, mm-hmm. like I see you mentioned not even Elon Musk, but a lot of guys in Go Bundes like, no, those are the real entrepreneurs. I'm just playing and, you know, I haven't run out yet. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> the idea is, can I be? And, um, you know, I've come around a long way. I, I anchor it in. 
is there any trait of the entrepreneurs I see that I share? And for me, it's defiance. That's the one word. My last guest, we talked about that. Um, that word defiance is huge. And I, I think that most entrepreneurs I know are that not like, you know, screw you, but more, wait, but that could be done better. I know I can do it better. Kind of this inward de- or, or inner defiance that they have in them. So, mm-hmm. um, let's talk about first class founders, the podcast, really, really good, yeah. well-produced growing. I know talk about it. What do you intend to do with it? What is the, uh, what's the, what are you trying to put out into the world? Yeah. So, so I feel like I've had some crazy life stories and lessons that I've learned growing my businesses. And it's really a platform for me to share those lessons and also encourage people and entrepreneurs to start on their journey. Because I really believe that you, you learn so much by being an entrepreneur, you learn a lot of life lessons. Uh, and so I think that every single person can benefit from starting their own business. And so I really want first class founders to be a destination for entrepreneurs to come together and essentially learn. And it doesn't even have to be from me. At some point, I, you know, right now, like going back to that I, we, they framework, you know, I'm at the I stage of first class founders. Um, and so eventually, I think that, uh, you know, I'll hire a team and all that. And, and I'm hoping that it'll become a platform for people to, um, to go to and essentially learn more about like, okay, how do I, you know, going back to that maps framework, how do I build an audience? You know, how do I build my first product? How do I scale this thing? Like basically, basically a place where people can learn all that, um, in an area that's like very, you know, accessible and, um, you know, hopefully like, yeah, I mean, it's just basically my, my way of giving back, um, to, you know, the entrepreneurial community and hopefully people will join me along the way and we'll, we'll see, you know, I love it, man. Love it all. I appreciate this. This is really, really fascinating, really interesting to hear your story. It's inspiring as hell. Where can people reach out, learn more about website, Instagram account, whatever you want to drop? Yeah. So yeah, the, the podcast is at firstclassfounders.com. And so that's really um, a, a great place to start. And then I'm also on Twitter at uh, Yong Su Chung. It's Y-O-N-G-S-O-O-C-H-U-N-G. And so Twitter is primarily the, the, the channel that I'm on now. And so if you want to send me a DM, go ahead. I'm open to talking to anybody. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of uh, where you can find me. Good stuff, man. Appreciate it. And uh, yeah, can't wait to put this out into the world. So thanks for coming on.